We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Ryland Morgans. Ryland is a UEFA Pro license holder. He's been the head of fitness and performance coach at Liverpool, Everton, Crystal Palace, Swansea and the Wales national team. So phenomenal experience. Also been a coach educator with the Welsh FA. So making this a little pre-season episode, um, of course, at this stage of the season, especially the college teams in the US are just about to kick off their, their pre-season. So I wanted to ask Ryland on a couple of areas and get his insight. Very, very interested to see how, if he was working in the US college system, how he would design or construct his pre-season schedule uh, with the short amount of time and the game schedule coming up. I also wanted to see how the sports science and the football philosophy, how we could merge them closer. That's an area that personally I am looking to improve in my coaching is to see with all this sports science and all this information, how can we blend it together? Uh, And then also wanted to get his insight into working with players like Gareth Bale, Luis Suarez, what separates them, amazing technical soccer players, but also great athletes. So again, how does how does he merge them both together? So I was really excited about this. I think coaches will get a lot from it, a lot that they can use with their teams and a lot that will challenge their thinking leading up to the preseason and how to how to put together their programs on the field and off the field and in the gym as well. So thanks so much to Ryland for, for joining us and let me know what you think. As always, on Twitter at Gary Kernin, Instagram at Gary Kernin. Always interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks for listening. Here's Ryland. Ryland, thanks very much for joining me this morning or today, your time on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about what in particular on your journey has shaped your coaching philosophy? Um, I think the biggest thing for me is that I've tried to learn from every manager, every coach, every other member of support staff and, and even the players that I've ever worked with. You know, Alongside that, I've, I've tried to get as qualified as possible as I can in, in the areas of science and coaching. Uh, and then applied the learning from these qualifications into an implied environment. Once you're into that implied, applied environment, it's about knowing your players inside out and then adapt what I've learned um, in a formal setting um, along with your experience and then figure out what works for you and your players and what doesn't. Um, but I suppose at a starting point, it was about learning very quickly while on the job um, so I think it's just a combination of, of trying to get as qualified as I can um, in, in a couple of areas um, and then being able to apply that in a, in a real world environment um, and basically being open to learning as, 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 as much as I can be. You probably get it as well. A lot of young coaches asking, you know, what advice would you have to progress as a coach? But what you're saying there, it sounds like it's that blend of experience and just continuing to learn while on the job. Yeah, for sure. I think if you think, oh, you know everything and there's nothing more that you can know, then you know, you're know you almost closing your, 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 
your ideas and your notions to a whole world of information knowledge that's out there. So I think, yeah, it's definitely about learning and, and continuing to learn every day. Um, and I think if you're working with players every day, then, <laughs> then I can guarantee you will some, learn something new from, from one of those players on a daily basis. So I think, you know, this, a starting point is, is probably always going to be a level of, of education, whether that's in, in a coaching format or a, or more of an academic format. And as I said uh, just now, f for me, it was about trying to get uh, as qualified as I could in, in both those areas and, and bring those two areas as closely together as possible when I'm, when I'm working on a daily basis. Let's talk pre-season then. So, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is a, a minefield, 100% yeah. for coaches. Um, yeah. I mean, we've always, we've all started, every coach, you know, myself, I've done this as well up until recently. You know, you you kind of meet your staff and you say, right, what's our goal for this? And we say, right, we want to improve. We almost do it without, no, you know, subconsciously say, we want to improve fitness, but yeah. we only have a limited amount of sessions per week. What's the starting point for you? Um, the starting point would be for me would be would be integration of 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 all the four corners, if you like, of you know physical. Yes, because it's pre season that always gets the the big emphasis. Uh, but I think it's also got to be, you know, the technical and tactical aspects of, of performance in football. And then ultimately, all of those three are underpinned by the psychological application of the players and the staff that you're working with. So for me, if you're trying to develop fitness for football players, um, then the greatest motivation they'll have is by doing it with a ball and through football type activities. So that so the global approach for me would, would be certainly do as much as um as possible that, that that you do it with a ball i just saw um the derby county sessions last night uh they were they were doing a, a little video on youtube about they interviewed tom huddleston and they were yep. at you know they're out in spain and they were saying you know the the player said that there's a lot of uh disguised running with the ball work and and yeah. they were asking him what he thought about that and he's like do you think you're being caught and he's like i, I don't care as long as there's a ball in it yeah, and I think you know that a lot of players would would probably have the same point. Is that yes, they're not stupid players these days, and and they'll figure out that yeah, I've got to run. But you know, players are also not stupid and realise that come a, a a competitive match, then they've got to do a lot of running with and without the ball. So I think yeah, having having a ball in there, they might you know the cynics might see it as a as disguised running, whereas the the optimists might say, well, I've got a ball, so I, I'm I'm more motivated than running with it. So, um, so yeah, I, I can certainly uh, can certainly agree with that, and I've, I've experienced players with that same opinion. Talking now on the college system in the US, what one thing that gets a lot of debate around this time of year is that we all start on a certain day, or say a start certain date over here. Um, everyone starts with, well, not everyone. Most teams start with fitness testing to see where people are at coming in. Um, and that's got a lot of debate about whether that's outdated or not. Uh, do you think that there's still a there's still a role in fitness testing at the elite side of the game? Um, I think it comes down to a lot of, of people's philosophies and what they think is important. Certainly in the first day, in the first week of preseason, um, if you're going to ask players to produce a maximal explosive test or to perform any test to, to their maximum and exhaustive on day one of pre-season when they've potentially had six, seven weeks of a downtime and an off-season. Yes, they'll have followed an off-season programme, hopefully. Um, 
but to ask players to maximise on day one, then I think if you're then going to put players into a high-volume type session in their first few days, then, you know, I, I, for me, there would always be a question of what types of tests are you going to, go, going to conduct on day one? Can those tests be spread over the entire week one? Or can some of those tests be spread out over weeks one, two and three, where players are starting to adapt to, to moving and moving at the velocities that they're used to training at? off the back of, as I said, a six or seven weeks of, of the off-season. So I think um, does screening and testing give us information that we don't already know? I think some tests can give us that. If it's tests on players that, that we know and have had for a number of seasons, then you know the, the, the screening and, and, and testing process might not need to be as, as vigorous and as, as uh, comprehensive as, 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 as the ones done on players that, that are new to the to the setup, but I think um, I think there is a place for it. But how predominant that place is certainly in day one of preseason, I think then that area is is up for a discussion. Yeah, there's probably the biggest word in college soccer is culture because you've only got them for three months, and everyone wants to make sure that culture is is right and is thriving. And and again, I've done this myself. I've brought players in and been. Well, we, I know maybe physiologically it's not the best thing to do to test them in day one, but maybe psychologically with the group, it just starts you off in, you know, the right mentality. We're going to, we're going to see who's mentally strong. We're going to test you. And do we overvalue the psych, the, the psychological side of that and, and risk too much physiologically? Um, I think it depends on the level and the type of player that you've got. Because I think some players will rise to that test and think, oh, yes, psychologically, you know, it, you're not going to break me. I'm going to max out. I'm going to win this test. You know, if it was an aerobically based test, as an example. But then I think with modern day players, not all of them will rise to that challenge. So the debate for me is, you know, if you're going to test a player maximally, if they're not one of those players that will rise to the occasion of a test to see who's going to be on the top of the leaderboard chart, if you like, is... How much value is that test data that you get on that player for that test if they're not actually giving you their maximum because they're not driven and motivated by, as I said, being the top, you know, number one in in, the, in an aerobic test. So I think, yeah, it's as I said at the start, it's about knowing your players and, and what's best for, for for getting the best out of those players. And is it on day one or is it all kind of spread out during during week one or, or certainly into week two? Just on that then, on knowing your players, is there anything a college coach or, or a coach who doesn't have full-time access to their players, is there anything they can do during the summer to know where they're at? Because we still, again, I think we're falling into the same trap of we're making so many advances in sports science in terms of monitoring, uh, but that time away from the team, uh, we're still, we, see, we still seem to be sending out a booklet for them to follow. Um, any tips on that? Um, I think if players are going to do it, they're going to do it. And if some players aren't going to do it, then again, it's not trying to figure out which players those are. And there are other monitoring methods where you can send some, you know, basic technology away with those players, but they can wear the technology while they're completing the test. They can fit, you know, you know what it's like with WhatsApp and social media these days, they, they can film themselves doing the test and get that to be recorded and sent in. So there are, you know, certain levels of, you know, other methods that you can ensure that that players are completing what you want them to do 
Whereas other players, you might feel comfortable that you know you can, like you say, you give them their document and away they go, and you know they're going to complete it to the to, to the to the letter. But um, I think that's about your personal rapport with the players and and knowing what type of players that you've got. The the college we just spoke before we started recording the college system in the US is a is a unique one to say the least. Um, basically, ten to fourteen days of of twenty four seven access to players in preseason. And then a game schedule where it's Friday, Sunday throughout the season. Um, ridiculous amount of load in, in the game structure and, ri- and ridiculous amount of, of you know, compactness in the preseason structure. Um, what key areas would, would you encourage coaches to look at in order to optimize the time but then not overtrain? I, I, th- I think a, a, a basic... Um, awareness of the principles of training to progressively overload the players, certainly in, a, in an aggressively, uh, in an aggressive but a safe as possible process, as you said, because of the time constraints. Based on those timelines that you just highlight, that they are very, very short. Um, through the congested periods, um, it's, it's how and when you recover the players would be a consideration, and then what, when, and how do you train. For example, the non-starters from the last game and when do the, the starters that played in the last game, when do they then get back out on the grass and train again? It's also about managing those players during the congested games. Um, do they start every game, Friday and Sunday, um, do the, uh, in consecutive games? How long do they play in those games? You know, Are you able to adapt them or modify those players on 60 minutes, 70 minutes, 90 minutes? I think other areas looking at tactical strategies, for example, a low block um, and a counter a counter attack versus a high press, which can certainly unload players um, in, in certain games. Um, but I think several of these factors can contribute to, the, to optimizing the performance without overtraining, and ultimately, you know, you're trying to in, you know, in decrease the player's risk of any injury during these congested periods. So, as a, as, a, as an overview of that, I suppose it would be the the simple principles of training during your pre-season, albeit a short one. Um, and then it's about recovering and ensuring that the players that maybe don't start every game, they maintain fitness. So when they do get then dropped into a game, they are then fit and available to perform. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one about changing the playing style then. If you're playing on a Sunday and, and you've just had a, an, even a Friday game. Friday game, yeah. Like you could... Now, th- you could change the system up completely. Yeah, you could change the system. You could change the, the style of play. Um, you can unload players by just changing a tactical system and ultimately a tactical strategy within that. So that's where, for me, the coaches, the manager and the fitness and performance people kind of you know have to be on the same page and be aware of what's going to be coming in terms of which players can, com- can cope with Friday and Sunday. You know, is there an unloaded process by playing you know, one holder versus two holders, um, you know, wing backs versus full backs, three centre backs versus two centre backs. So there's loads of ways of, of unloading players, but still ultimately getting them through 95 minutes of, of a competitive fixture. Um, but there are ways of being able to modify players' l- workload um, as by the strategies that I've just mentioned. Do you think we've reached a stage in the game today where coaches worry a little too much about overtraining and instead are, are unintentionally undertraining their teams? Um, possibly, yes. Um, I think at an elite level, every decision is scrutinised. 
injury stats and player availability information is, is everywhere. Um, ultimately, if a, if a club's or a team's best players are often not available through injury, then this will probably affect the team's performance in the short term and, and ultimately over an entire season, which then affects, you know, for example, in the Premier League, you know, where they're, they're based on the final league position, the Premier League money that comes in. So I think a clearly defined training methodology for all the players and the staff uh, that, that they are fully aware of and where the staff can, can openly speak and raise concerns with the manager and the coaches. I think that's certainly a good starting point uh, for a good working environment and ultimately a common goal for, for all the staff and all the players, which is ultimately you know, performance come match day. Um, so I think a, a clearly defined training methodology um, can ensure that, that players are fit to perform, they're available, they're not overtrained and they're not undertrained. So I think that the greater that that, uh, that clarity is, is, is available for all the staff and all the players, then, then hopefully uh, that certainly helps towards uh, performance to come match day. You're looking then as a, almost as a flexible staff then, isn't it? As someone, you know, you mentioned that the players at different levels, starters, non-starters, people coming back from injury. There has to be a program just to accommodate every aspect of that in the program. Yes, for sure. And I think if you know, if depending on the length of in, length of time a player's been out, what type of injury it was, what are their positional demands when they actually come into play, um, what are their training demands when they get dropped into a training session on a minus three versus a minus two. Um, so I think knowing all those factors then you know helps decisions to be made as to right when can that. You know, that returning player be reintegrated into team training? How long do they then have to, to take part of team training before they're then ultimately available for a match? And then once they're available for a match, how long of a match can they, you know, do do you think that they can cope with? Um, and I think, yeah, there's a, there's a whole range of questions and bits of information and data that can be put into that, into that decision-making process. Yeah, on that on that data, we've we've almost come to a, a revolution in terms of information and data with the sports science. Um, a lot of coaches that are buying equipment that can help reduce injuries, improve their teams. What re- regularly happens in the US is that that equipment is purchased and then given to a, a young assistant coach who is being told to look after it without a background <laughs> in sports science. Um, yeah. w- what advice would you have for young coaches who are introduced? To working with data alongside their teams? Um, I think it's about having a clear de- definition of what it is you're analysing in the data and why. You know, how does this analyst, uh, this analysis that you're doing help the team perform? You know, how can you interpret that data analysis and provide simple and effective feedback to the coaches? Um, what recommendations do you have on how to implement this feedback into real types of practices? You know, is that practices in presentations or is that practices on the grass? You know, I think if you're a young coach, if you can ensure that you're, that you're looking at being able to answer all of these key questions, uh, then ultimately I think it can be an asset to the manager and the coaches. If you can't, and you, like you said, it just gets dumped on a young assistant coach and they don't really know what they're looking for in the data, then it ends up probably being quite a costly, ineffective use of one's time and, and money, I suppose. Um, so I think it's yeah it's it's a clear understanding of of what data you want to produce, why, how you're going to analyze it, and how can you provide simple, effective feedback to the coaches, and and ultimately what are you gonna 
what are you going to do with that feedback? What, what does that feedback turn into? Does it turn into a presentation to the players? Does it turn into a, a certain type of practice on the grass that players can then learn from this analysis that you've spent, like you say, ultimately hours trolling through sets of data? Yeah, so many teams around the world, not just the US, are, are investing now heavily on the sports science side of the game. Um, how can we help connect that area of the game more with the art of coaching? Um, as you said, uh, you know, I think a lot of coach education for the coaches and uh, you know, the sports science elements are, are certainly integrated in those coaching licenses. Um, and, and, the, and the coaching licenses are certainly now being more integrated in sports science type degrees. Um, I think the, there is progress being made in these areas um, as I've delivered the FAW UEFA Pro license and A license for a number of years. So, so hopefully um, these types of areas can, can, can continue. I think the closer the skill set of, like you say, coaches and managers and sports science and, and performance type coaches, I think the closer the skill set of these types of practitioners are, the more synergy there might be in their delivery. Um, so I think, you know, people are continually thirsty for more education and more information and knowledge. And I think as long as two areas recognize and, and you know, probably acknowledge the significance that the other area of, 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 of being coaching or science can, can add um, to the other, then I think um, then long may it, may it develop. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of I think from especially people like Raymond Verheyen are saying now that the sports sports science people and sports science students have to start speaking the language of of the game. Um, but how much emphasis should I put as a coach with no sports science background on learning sports science terminology and vocabulary? Um, well, I, that's probably why I did my coaching licenses and and did my academia but I, I don't for every like you say sports science term or jargon or word that can be used there's also a very layman simple term that can be used so you know an eccentric contraction of the hamstring basically means when the the hamstring's at its longest lengthy point so you know it, there's very simple ways to simplify the terms of, of what would be regarded as, as sports science so I don't think there is ultimately a need to be using these terms. Um, so, and I think the more common language that's used, the more synergy there is between the two departments. And ultimately, as I said, that ultimately everyone's aim should be you know, performance for the team. So everyone, you know, the foot, the language of football is very simple. So I think, um, so I think, yeah, keeping it simple uh, certainly will help. That's a relief. I don't have to go buy all those textbooks. Then. <laughs> no, no, I think you're all right. <laughs> Just all right. go on, go go on Google. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Working yeah. working in the Premier League, and in your experience, what's the most challenging from a physical point of view? Is it fix your congestion, or is it the the tempo, the intensity, the pace of the game? Um, I think competing in the Premier League. I think it's physical and mental. Um, as uh, you know, not just not just physical, but but probably the congested periods. Um, you know, if you're not in a European competition and you're just competing in the Premier League, players are used to com uh, you know competing every Saturday once a week. So when a congested period like Christmas comes around, um, it's something that they're generally not used to. Um, now, ultimately, unless you change your training methods on certain days of the week to prepare the players for these forthcoming congested periods, 
then once they come to Christmas, you know, it, it hits them because they're not used to it. So a way around that is is tweaking your training methods on certain days of the week, you know, for maybe a two, three week period leading into that congested period. So players get used to performing these types of explosive actions on two or three days a week because that's what they'll be faced with during a Christmas period. Um, so I think the congested periods would be more demanding from a physical and a psychological peer, uh, point of view. Um, as well as, you know, like you say, it, it's around Christmas where, you know, people want to spend time with their families. So um, the physical and the psychological um, is certainly uh, a factor. Your your role on match day, what kind of communication do you have? We always talk about about your role and we, we, we think about it as, from my side, I always think about it during the week. But I've never really thought about it or looked at it from a match day role. Um, what, do you, what do you, communication do you have with a head coach during the game and, and what do you look out for on the bench? Um, if, I, if I do need to have communication with, with the manager, then, then, then ultimately it has to be very, very clear communication um, as, as a lot of the, the bits of information that are being passed around on the bench, they're very time sensitive based on the game. Um, and then ultimately, if there is information that needs to be passed on, it's, it's really as and when required. Um, or as regular that as is needed. Um, I'll always probably be going into a game with with a player or, or a couple of players in mind to to keep an eye on for various reasons, like you've mentioned before about a player reintegrating or or coming back in. Um, have they have they had a, you know a clear training week? Uh, you know, have they had any spikes or troughs in in any training load? Um, so I'll often be keeping an eye on on players in terms of their movements in and out of possession. Any explosive or sprint type actions, any bodily contacts, twists or turns, um, and ultimately, I'll be quite, you know, fortunate to have an iPad with the game on real time, so I can actually, you know, rewind, slow mo anything back and review anything that I need before ultimately providing any information to the to the coaches or the manager. So there's often you know, one or two players that uh, that you know I'll be keeping an eye on. But hopefully, I, I can get through a game without having to open my mouth. That's always a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know that uh, just immediately after a game is it? Do you wait until you analyze it before you give any individual feedback, or or is there an informal feedback process? Or? Um, if, if there's an issue with a player in the game, ultimately that'll be real time and that'll be there and then. Um, and then ultimately, in terms of the physical, the technical, and the tactical analysis, that'll be done post game. You know, the, the night of the game, the morning after. Um, and then that will be probably reviewed the, the day after um, to see what bits to pick out to, to ultimately show back to players or, or present to the players come the next working day. Last year at, at Crystal Palace, Andros Townsend credited you with, he said, I wasn't fit enough in the first half of the season. Ryla Morgan's came in and changed that. He's got me getting the most out of my body. Now I'm putting in great shifts for the team. Um, curious what the starting point for that was. I chucked Andros 50 quid. <laughs> Just to say that. <laughs> no. Um, the starting point, I suppose, was, was the analysis of the team and the individual's training load and match load um, to see what they've been producing in matches and when, what and how and where in the training week have they been producing their training load and where has it fluctuated um, then it was about building rapport with the, with the squad and the individual players, um, and then being able to you know dis discuss and explain to them 
um, what they have been doing, what we now want them to be doing and, and why we're asking them to do slightly different things in, in training. Then it's ultimately about you know, implementing those changes uh, in, a, in a different training methods. Um, simply, you know, the starting point was, you know, recovering the players fully while ensuring that the non-starting players maintain their football fitness. So come a Sunday, the players that have played on Saturday are, are doing a, a standardised recovery session where the players that haven't played work on a football fitness session. Um, then it's about working all of those players um, harder on certain days of the week to increase their tolerance and training load um, and their ability to transfer that training load into, into match performances and games. Uh, and then ultimately restricting any fatiguing type actions, you know, at the back end of the week closest to the game. You know, this doesn't happen overnight, so it took, it did take some time to to ultimately get players to buy into this to this change. Uh, but then ultimately, you know, when that when that does happen, then they ultimately see the benefits. Uh, unfortunately enough, Crystal Palace finished the season strong with with you know with high player availability, which which certainly helped um, the consistency of the team and ultimately, you know, getting the best players out on the pitch as often as possible interested just to, to hear your insight on working with gareth bale at wales um yeah because of, it seems like he is the commitment that he's put on on a physical level seems to be for, so impressive uh just from your insight and your experience what commitment does it take for a top player to go from very good to world class um, I've, I've probably been very fortunate to, to work with several world-class players, you know, Gerard, Suarez, Coutinho and, and Gareth being, you know, like, like you've mentioned. And probably the one common denominator that they all have is they work extremely hard at their game because they ultimately love the game. Um, they also work, at, you know, they work at their weaknesses, um, but then they also work even harder at their strengths, you know, um, you know and that's done on a daily, weekly basis. You know, you know. Add on top of that that they make the right choices in their lifestyle, um, and and ultimately they dedicate themselves to to the life of a footballer. You know, as I said, because you know they have a love for the game. You know, so, so, you know, a couple of those players that I've just mentioned there. You know, if you let them train seven days a week, they would train seven days a week. You know, because they just loved the game. But as I said, you know, they worked at their weaknesses, but they worked even harder at their strengths. Um, and what I would also say about you know several of those players, well, all of those players I've just mentioned, but but several of the of of the world class players is that they are very humble, you know, and and you know they, they'll they'll spend time with with people and listen to to you know bits of advice that you might have for them, um, and they'll take that on board, and you know and, you know it's about working with them to help them to maximise the potential that they have, but you know, true dedication, I suppose, is is the uh, is the uh, is the biggest commitment that they'd have. Yeah, it's it seems to be that it's, it's sometimes it's we're, we're looking for clues with what separates the Suarez's and Coutinho's and, and we think sometimes we think it's just because they're from a different country, but from there it sounds as if they're just spending more time on their game. Yeah, you know, you know, they they know what works for them, and sometimes you know I've worked with Gareth for for over eight years, so you know he was a young man when I first started working with him, so you know as he develops and starts to figure out his own body and. And what has caused him injuries in the past, and what now makes him feel better come match day. And you know, we had that fantastic period with you know having him for for eight nine weeks in the preparation and the Euro. So you know, you get to know these players inside out when you've been with them for so long. So you know, being able to help them and advise them and you know recommend things for them, you know, that's all very well and good. But they've still got to take that and go and do it and apply it. 
Um, and, and someone like Gareth was, was, you know, was kind of a breath of fresh air with things like that, you know. Last couple of questions. The, the World Cup. Um, <laughs> come into the... I know we're going <laughs> <laughs> Asking a Welshman. <laughs> An Irishman asking a Welshman. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have we got to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> the kits. Um, which, which teams have impressed you? Uh, I think it'd be an obvious one to say to stay Belgium have. Um, you know, they've they've generally got world class players in, in most positions across the pitch. Um but I'd also say Croatia. Um, you know, their their grit and determination and their steel to to find a win when it looks like they're not going to. I think they're they're very good traits to have to get to the latter stages of a competition. Um so yes, th- th- those would I say would be the ones that have that, that have impressed me so far. I couldn't say I've watched every game, um, so I, I might be doing someone a disservice. But um, I, I, from the games I've watched, I'd probably stick on those two. Yeah. What um, now that you know we mentioned before about your kind of your schedule, short terms, you, you're traveling all over the world, delivering some seminars and presentations and. Is is there an is there an area now that you've got some free time that you're looking at saying you know I'd like to go to this culture and find out a little more more about what they're doing or yes that that's definitely something I'm going to do over the next few months um, as you said I've got a few conferences and 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 um, uh, conventions to present on over the next few months but then I'm going to try and take some time to to go and experience um, what they do in in the MLS you know what they do in, in other cultures and other sports. Um, uh, so not just other con- not uh, other clubs in other countries in football, but uh, but other sports as well. So I think you can always pick up and learn. I've spent a couple of days watching some rugby setups. Um, so so I think there's always things that you, that you can learn from other sports and, and pull them across. Um, so yeah, hopefully I'll, uh, I'll I'll be able to pick up a few golden nuggets um, in the next couple of months and uh, and apply them back into football. Raylan, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Pleasure. Really enjoyed this. Top class. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. And, uh, Appreciate your time. Best of, best of luck in your travels and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Excellent. Cheers, Gary. Thanks so much to Ryland for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, obviously, I'm a big, big fan, big follower of the Premier League. So very curious to see how strength and conditioning, science and coaches work together in managing the game schedule with the intensity of those games that are played at 100 miles an hour. And also the level of pressure, every one of those games means something because at the top end, maybe there's not four or five teams playing for the title, but there's five or six teams that are going for huge Champions League spots and then there's the relegation battle as well. So every game means something in the Premier League um, and, and very, very interesting to hear You know that the level of care and the level of detail that goes into working alongside coaches, knowing what your philosophy is, knowing your players and then having to adapt around that there, I think is a lesson that can go to college coaches, club coaches, high school coaches um, of every area and in every country. Uh, We've got to get to know our players and we've got to get to know what we're trying to do tactically um, before we set any 
strength and conditioning program in place and as always like i'm glad Ryland said that there that it's not just you just can't take a plan and put it with any team i have a good friend uh who who's a strength conditioning coach and he always gets frustrated with coaches that ask him for warm-up drills or fitness testing um and unless you know your players and what you're trying to do again you're just copying someone else's and it's always going to fall short so good to hear Ryland's insight on that there also interesting to hear his insight and his views on the fitness testing area. From a personal point of view, it's something that I did uh, in college. Day one was always fitness testing. I went away from it for two years uh, and I found that it the, it lost a little bit in the program. So yeah, it's it's always that day one. Do I place a lot of emphasis on it? No, I didn't. Do I Did I look at the times for three or four weeks and study them? Not really. Um, but I always felt that it started pre-season almost to get it out of the door. I wanted players coming in with that nervousness to be like, there's something I've worked at all summer. And I also found from my point of view that as a head coach, it gave certain players who maybe weren't going to see the field um, every game it, and and were worked on their fitness. It gave them a little confidence boost coming in. It gave them a little bit of an area where they they could shine. Uh, and I felt that it it always kicked the program off really well. After that, straight to the balls, and then there was more of a I suppose a periodized program. But in in day one, and I always liked and setting the tone that this is what it's going to be about a high intense environment it's going to be about competition and we're going to get after it so interested to hear your thoughts i'm sure that'll drive a little bit of conversation as coaches start now um putting together their pre-season plans but let me know what you think as always at gary Kernin on twitter at gary Kernin on instagram um if you want to reach out email gary at modernsoccercoach.com love to hear what coaches think of it as always um if you're looking for any exercises or sessions as the preseason starts to develop, um, check out modernsoccercoach.com. We've got a couple of uh, resources there. We've got my pressing book, got the sessions book. So things that you can look at. So again, it's not for taking and copying, but putting ideas and seeing what other people do, I always think is, is pretty good. So love getting your feedback. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kerneen on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.